I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, executive coach and performance expert Brad Stolberg on how to get the best out of ourselves. We tend to celebrate these heroic efforts. The truth is that if you try to be heroic too often, it inevitably ends in injury, illness, or burnout. Whereas if you can show restraint and you can stop a little bit short, you can string together consecutive efforts over a month, over a year, perhaps even over a decade. And that's where you really get the best, most sustainable, biggest results. And later, when life throws you curveballs, Brad Stahlberg opens up about his personal struggles with an OCD diagnosis. So you're kind of sitting in this just brutal storm of like terrible, anxious, depressive feelings and intrusive thoughts. And that's what OCD is. It's not having your red crayons and your green crayons next to each other. Breaking the mystique on gaining peak performance, even when we think the odds are stacked against us. That's coming up on Life Examined. We've talked a lot on this program about embracing serenity in our lives, enjoying the outdoors, friends and family, even moments of awe. So how does that dovetail into maximizing our full potential in life? I mean, succeeding in business, work, sports, or hobbies we care about. Is it possible to find a happy medium, achieving excellence and placid contentment in life? In the age of increased stress and too much screen time, how do we motivate ourselves to get off the couch? What strategies are there to achieve long-term peak performance without burning out? Most fitness coaches and athletes will tell you the same thing. No pain, no gain. Simply put, to make any headway, you'll need to put in some hard, grueling hours. Coach and performance expert Brad Stolberg suggests an alternative approach that may achieve more lasting results. Focus more on the process and less on the outcome. Consistency is more important than intensity. And when it comes to finding motivation, Stolberg says no one ever reaches the top alone. It's okay to lean on others. It works and, frankly, is a lot more fun. Stolberg researches, writes, and coaches on health, well-being, and sustainable excellence. His books include Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and most recently, The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes, your soul. Well, Brad Stolberg, it's great to have you on Life Examined. I've been waiting for this for a while. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, there's so much I want to get to today, whether it's how we think about success, whether it's career or the body or also mental health stuff. But but before any of that, how did you end up in this space thinking about these big questions? And if I have this right, I mean, you are not a coach, but really someone working more in the consultant or business world. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So um, way back in the when machine, I, uh, following my undergraduate degree, I started a job in management consulting for no other reason that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it's just kind of you go to law school or you take a job at a consulting firm back then. Um, pretty quickly, I realized that that probably wasn't the career path that I wanted to chart. And I went back for a graduate degree and studied public health. And it was really in public health school where I became fascinated, not just by health as the absence of disease, but health as human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And from there, over the last two decades, I've had a fairly circuitous path um, to where I am today, which is, as you mentioned, uh, thinking about these big questions and doing my best to wrestle with them in my book and then in my coaching practice. Well, let's think about some of the important principles that go into, um, you know, that go into success. And and you do a really good job listing these, whether it's been on Twitter or Instagram or in your books. But but before we do that, I mean, how do you think about, like in a nutshell, what human flourishing is or success? What do we know about it? I like to think about it in the simplest terms as feeling good and doing good. So you are engaging in something that is likely related to your core values or that you find meaningful. You feel like you're contributing, whether that is to your local community, to an organization, to a team, and you're also feeling good while you're doing it. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be feeling good every single instant of being successful. Ask any elite athlete and there are very hard workouts, but the totality of your striving should feel pretty good. I think people get out of whack when they do good, but at the cost of how they feel, or they center around just feeling good, but they don't feel like they're making a meaningful contribution, they don't feel like they're doing good. So I define peak performance, flourishing, success, all of these synonyms, um, again, is, is feeling good and doing good at the same time. In the earlier parts of your life, were you ever feeling good and doing good, say when you were at McKinsey or trying to figure your life out? 
I mean, in, back in high school, probably when I didn't have any responsibility. Uh-huh. Um, but no, I, I mean, I went through a period of um, back then it, it wasn't really even burnout wasn't a thing. But in hindsight, it was definitely burnout. And that was from that equation of feeling good and doing good, just being out of whack. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the first things you talk about in this kind of equation is that that outcomes matter, but you have to enjoy the process if you're going to have meaningful longevity. Say more about that. All right. So first, let's define the terms. So an outcome is the end result of something that you are striving for. For a mountain climber, it's reaching the peak. For a triathlete, it's finishing the race or perhaps finishing the race in X amount of hours and minutes. For somebody in the traditional workplace, it could be a promotion. For a writer, it could be publishing a book or hitting a bestseller list, right? These are very um, measurable achievements. Now, the process is what you do to give yourself the best chance at that achievement. That is the hours that you put in training, the time that you spend writing and reading, um, the showing up at your job every day, really trying to be your best. We can control the process, but we can't control the outcome. And outcomes are affected by all sorts of external variables. So again, on the race course, if you're a triathlete, well, what happens if you hit a piece of glass and you get a flat tire and that blows up your race? Are you a failure? You did everything else right. Of course not. If you're a mountain climber, what happens if the weather window closes? In the office, what happens if you've done everything right, but your manager's mom gets a cancer diagnosis and they have to take a medical leave and therefore you don't get promoted in the cycle that you wished you would? Now... When I'm saying these things, you might think, oh, that won't happen to me. But if you live long enough, of course, this is going to happen to you and the things you care about. Life is full of all of these externalities that we cannot control. What we can control is our effort and our process. And by centering yourself and judging yourself based on that process, you become a little bit more immune to the vicissitudes of these external outcomes that are outside of our control. Mm -hmm. Now, it's really important to note what I'm not saying is two things here. The first is I'm not saying that outcomes don't matter. Outcomes do matter, and oftentimes they're quite important. We should strive for them. We just don't want to attach our well-being to the achievement of them. The second thing that I'm saying is that it's not that we shouldn't care about outcomes. I'm not suggesting that we all sign up for the monastery and and completely um, negate any worldly pleasure. It's just that I don't think that outcomes should be the majority motivator. And I really mean that. If you're driven by the intrinsic, by the process, 51% of the time, and the outcome's 49% of the time, you're probably doing okay. Mm. You've been very gracious to mention triathlon because, you know, this is something that I've spent so much time doing, whether an Ironman or half Ironmans. And I I remember very distinctly uh, my coach telling me at one point when I was just feeling burned out, he said, you know, in the end, the people that stick with this are those that like the training. They don't just like the races, they like the training. And I remember that was the question that I had to sit with, that I actually want to wake up and run, that I want to swim, that I want to bike and do it for 15 hours a week. But I think in my mind, that was actually a profound point because just making it through a finish line generally wasn't going to sustain the amount of sacrifice that's forced to go into those races. Do you know what I mean? 100%. And, and, and that's true in triathlon and it's true in any big endeavor in life. I mean, doing hard things is hard. Mm. And yes, when there's meaning connected to them, it's a little bit easier because it feels really good to be working towards something that's meaningful. But still, if you can't enjoy the day to day or if you don't enjoy it because the workout is painful or the writing process is really arduous, if you can't like what you're becoming as a result of doing it, then it's extremely hard to have longevity. And the other thing that works against you is when you become really attached to outcomes, well, like I said, we don't really control them. So it's a, it's a roller coaster of emotion and it can lead to a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you tie your self-worth or your sense of accomplishment to whether or not you finish the Ironman in under 10 hours or you get to the peak of the mountain or you get promoted to vice president at the company and something happens and you don't, well, then it's going to make for a really, really challenging time just to keep going. Mm. Whereas if you tie your identity and your self-worth to the effort, to the process that you can control, it's not that those failures aren't going to happen and it's not that they're not going to hurt, but I think it makes you a lot more resilient to really ground yourself in the process. Mm. Another way to think of it is this. For things that matter to you, 
it's much, much better to spend more time thinking about and doing the actual work than thinking about and stressing about the results of the work. And that's true whether we're talking about racing a triathlon, um, getting promoted, but it's also true for parenting, right? Like how many parents get caught in the trap of just hoping that their kid is going to do this or be X, Y, Z, and then the years go by and they don't actually do the work of parenting. And I think that in today's culture where there's such a focus on bright and shiny objects and things that look good on social media, we get really pulled to talking about the thing or dreaming about or thinking about the thing instead of actually doing the thing. Mm. Yet decades of research shows that well-being comes from doing the thing. And there was something you said just a few minutes ago that, that I, I really liked. You said, who are we becoming in the process? Uh, can you say more about that? Because I, I think that's, that's a nuance that is important. Well, I think that what you work on works on you is the simplest way to put it. So when you're training for triathlons, you know, that in addition to making you physically fit, presumably you're learning how to deal with uncomfortable physical sensations. Mm. You're maybe reinvigorating competitive fire from your youth, or maybe you're learning how to put some of that competitive fire aside. And these aren't things that happen moment to moment during a training session. But when you zoom out and you look at the totality of your career as a pretty serious, it sounds like amateur athlete, presumably that's changing you as a person. Mm. And to me, that's all part of the process as well. And I'm just using triathlon because I know it's an interest of yours. The yeah. same thing could be true for growing a garden, for um, trying to write poetry. And it can be true for being a business professional, for your career as an attorney. Um, I think it's, it, 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 it is part of the process, not just when you're doing it, but also kind of the effect that it has on you. Mm. You know, and this is another thing you wrote about, and it's something that I have fallen prey to a lot, which is the, the hard things I've tried to achieve in my life, whether, you know, starting a public radio program or doing an Ironman or whatever, I, I've tended to do them alone. And I think that I've suffered as a result. I never trained with enough people or joined communities that were trying to go after similar objectives or enjoy the same experiences. And this is something you've written about. Um, you, you said community is everything. Nobody reaches the top alone. The people around you shape you. So surround yourself wisely. I think it's an important point. Can you expand on it? Yes. So let's just talk about it purely from an achievement standpoint for the type A listeners, and then we'll get into the more woo-woo, you know, spiritual fulfillment side. Sure. So purely from an achievement standpoint, we know that undertaking big challenges in groups of like-minded others leads to a much higher success rate. Hmm. Now, why is that? I think there's two reasons. The first is the reason that everyone talks about, which is having a community holds you accountable. So you don't want to show up for the workout. You don't want to show up to record, whatever it is. But if you've got a team, you know that you have to be there for them or they're going to be texting you or calling you to check in, see where you are. I think equally important is when you fail to show up, when you fall, your community provides a safety net because they too get it. They understand it's hard and they're there for you to support you and to get your back on your feet. So it's kind of this paradox, right? On the one hand, it's accountability to do the thing. And on the other hand, when you don't do the thing, it's support to get back on the bandwagon. Mm. So my, my understanding of the research is those are the two mechanisms by which community supports performance. It's also just more fun. Yeah. You know, happiness is best shared. Like at the end of our lives, and there's some longitudinal data on this, people don't reflect and say, oh, the most meaningful thing in my life was winning the gold medal or was making the C-suite, or was hitting the bestseller list, or was launching my first art, art, you know, art show or art exhibit. What they say is what made my life meaningful were my training partners, mm -hmm. or the team of people that I worked with at that organization, or the people that I met along the way when my art finally hit the gallery scene. So what we draw meaning from isn't this solo heroic individual achievement, but it's from the community that we do those things with. Mm. Um, there's this beautiful quote in an old Eastern parable and in it, the, the Buddha's loyal attendant who's named Ananda goes up to the Buddha and he says, blessed one, blessed one, Buddha, Buddha. I've heard that good comradeship, good friendship, good community is half the spiritual life. Can this possibly be true? And allegedly the Buddha looks at him and he says, no, Ananda, no, you're mistaken. Good comradeship, good friendship, community is the whole of the spiritual life. Hmm. And I just love that because I find that so true. And I know in my own life, right? So 
I'm a I'm a uh, an armchair athlete and I care about my performance in sport. And then as a writer, I've got all of these objective metrics. I've got copies sold. I've got bestseller list. I have to have a social media platform. All this stuff that is so external. And I'll tell you what: the times that my mental health suffers and I get too attached to that stuff are directly correlated to the times when I'm not spending enough time with the communities that matter to me most in my life. So when I'm really engaged in my neighborhood or making time to hang out with my friends or making sure that I go to the gym when my my training buddies are going to be there, I don't really care how many books I sold that week or how my social media account did. But it's when I kind of let that stuff go that suddenly I start to care a lot more about outcomes. Mm. And I think that getting your sense of groundedness and your sense of self-worth from being enmeshed in a community is so much healthier and more sustainable than getting it from external outcomes. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's so much there we could talk about. And I had this thought when you were talking about accountability. I mean, one thing that's really worked well for me is I got a coach to help me, like somebody that would really be on a journey with me and would help me understand my own health or how I was going to, you know, get through an Ironman or whatever. And it's been so interesting now that I've been a month removed from a coaching relationship, how much I'm missing it. Like, I miss being accountable to somebody. I miss being able to talk to somebody about the fact that I'm going to go for a run tomorrow or how I'm feeling. There was something about the connection that was able to get me through so many hard things. And I don't think it needs to be a coach. It can be a friend, a partner. It can be a training team. But I think there, there's a lot, there's a big difference in mentality of just doing something alone because you think you need to do it versus being with a group and being accountable or having that community. So I, I feel like we're kind of saying the same thing here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that where people make a mistake is they think that this is only true for sports. Mm -hmm. But I would argue it doesn't take much creativity to create this kind of community in pretty much any pursuit that you're involved in. Mm -hmm. So writing, often very solitary. Um, I have a co-author on two of my three books. We write a newsletter together. We have an umbrella under which all of our work lives. Is it a pain in the ass sometimes working with another human that I don't always see eye to eye with? 100%. Am I so much happier and healthier for having this com- this partnership? Also 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we tend to only see the cost of working with others on things that we really care about and not always the benefits. Yeah, it's interesting. I, a friend of mine was trying to launch a project recently. He had this idea for like an interesting invention. And what I've watched is that these good ideas can sometimes not necessarily die, but may not come to fruition unless there's another person to walk alongside of them and to bring the project to life. I mean, I think we can do great things alone, but to me, I'm always amazed at the ability of bringing just one other person into your life and the energy and the outlook and the, you know, the outcomes I think can be pretty profound and significant. Yeah. And I love, I love the metaphor of mountain climbing for so many things. And I think it applies here. We know that the success rate of climbing big mountains is exponentially higher when you're part of an exhibition team than Mm -hmm. when you go at it alone. So why wouldn't that be true for all the mountains we try to climb in our lives? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, Just kind of continuing through, I think, some of the important points that you talk about, and this is another one, and gosh, I got to stay away from sports metaphors, but you write that consistency is way more important that intensity. So I'll, I'll let you take it from there, but I, I have some interesting things that run through my mind in terms of this. Okay. So I'm so glad this is probably like one of the favorite principles that I think and I write about. Yeah. So intensity sells really well, lose 10 pounds in 10 days. Um, train for your first marathon in eight weeks, so on and so forth. And you know what? People can do that. Like there's a reason that these programs sell but you can't do that for longer than the 10 days or the eight weeks Mm. without getting injured, sick, or burnt out. Now, unfortunately, intensity is also kind of what the popular culture loves. So no one posts their, you know, I worked a nine to five and I had really good boundaries work day on Instagram. They post their all nighter. So we tend to celebrate these heroic efforts. And the truth is that If you try to be heroic too often, again, it inevitably ends in injury, illness, or burnout. Whereas if you can show restraint and you can stop a little bit short, a la consistency, you can string together consecutive efforts over a month, over a year, perhaps even over a decade. And that's where you really get the best, most sustainable, biggest results. 
Another way to think about it is this. Good enough over and over and over again eventually becomes great. Whereas if you try to be great every day, man, that's a high bar and it's a bar that's likely to lead in you flaming out. Mm. And there's so much interesting data here, and I'm going to return to just athletics and endurance sports for a second. You've probably heard of the 80-20 model, right? So 80% of training should be kind of moderate. Like it should be long distance. You shouldn't be putting an all-out effort. And 20% should be fast intervals, sprints, for example. And that's kind of what I know or what I've been introduced as as one of the most powerful models for getting stronger. But I, again, it's the 80% there that jumps out to me. That's That means you got to just kind of keep that consistent effort that you're talking about, right? It, it's, I think that ratio makes sense. Yeah, and I think the better you get, actually, the more it becomes like 90-10. Hmm. Because the risks of really going to the well, whether it's intellectually or physically, you, it's just once you're close to that edge, if you cross over it, you're going to get hurt in a way that's going to take a long time to come back from. Yeah. Um, but again, what, what are the workouts that you want to tell your friends about? Is it the PRs. slow, long Strava distance, three-hour right. ride, right? <laughs> is, it the, is it the time that you wrote for two hours a day for six months? No, it's the time that you freaking went to the well and buried yourself. Or it's the time that you wrote for 16 hours straight, you know, sipping Red Bulls and espresso because you were on deadline. And I'll be really clear because I, I try to be nuanced. There's real value in those efforts if you do them maybe one to three times a year. Hmm. But beyond that, you're just setting yourself up for disaster. So it's kind of like this slow, boring, chip, 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 chip away that eventually gets you something huge. Whereas if you just go for something huge... The research shows in different domains, ranging from sport to creativity to the traditional workplace, you tend not to um, you tend not to achieve your goal. Yeah, and I mean, I think any writer I've interviewed or artist would would confirm this. And it's not a very sexy answer, but it's it's those that say, you know, I have to just show up for that hour every morning and do this, otherwise I lose touch with what I'm doing. Like these these great things don't happen in flourish in these fast flourishes, and and I I really appreciate that. I mean. And it's something I think I've had to make sense of. And I don't know if it's an American ideal or a Western ideal, but it's like the archetype of almost like the warrior who feels they need to show up really big and tough and strong and bury the opponent or be stronger in these really powerful bursts. You know, we see this in football or in different sports where it's not actually a very helpful metaphor to draw that out into daily life. I think we need other ones. I don't know. And this might sound cheesy, but like the gardener, somebody that just tends things patiently and slowly, I find to be just a much more productive way of being. Yeah, there's a balance between making things happen and letting them happen. Mm. And I think on the one hand, the warrior makes things happen and the gardener lets things happen. And I tend to agree with you. I think the most sustainable and the most enjoyable way to success is to, you know, nudge things and make them happen when you need to, but also to have the patience and the restraint to let things unfold on their own. Now, I'll say this, it, the, the whole heroic thing, it is everywhere once you start to look for it. Yeah. So one of my favorite examples is I, I work with a, a handful of entrepreneurs and my, my most recent book really took off in the entrepreneurial world because it kind of says the opposite of what the incentives are. So a venture capital firm might invest in 50 to 60 companies in a fund. And they only need one or two of those companies to work to return. So their incentive is to have all 60 companies be as heroic as possible. And they could care less if 58 go bust. Mm. Because as long as two make it, they're going to get a great return for their investors. So we have this culture that kind of says, like, go to the well. But yeah. what you don't see is the 58 companies that go bust and the human toll on the founders and the first employees of those companies. Um, in sports, you often talk about... Any coach can throw 100 eggs at the wall and have one not break, but then they break 99 eggs. And I think that so many of our incentive structures are set up where it's kind of okay if, if 99 fail really miserably as long as one succeeds. Um, and those are the stories that get told. But if you're trying to chart your own route to success, you want to be in a program where actually most of the eggs make it. Mm. Yeah. And how do you think we've fallen into these traps? I mean, is it just storytelling? Is it more marketable to look at, you know, a life of peaks and valleys versus a kind of a consistent work ethic? What do you think has happened? Yeah, I think that it's I think it's more marketable. Absolutely. Um, I think that there's a reason that people love action movies. and Those tend to be the blockbuster movies, not the slower movies. And then if you think of yourself as an action hero in your own life, 
Uh, I think that that's a big part to it. Um, I also think like it, it's just human, you know, the, the fountain of youth is from like, I don't know, 1500. And people thought that if they just like made this track and they touched the water, they'd live forever. And they weren't talking about like, you know, walking for an hour a day and eating your fruits and vegetables. It's no, I got to get to the fountain of youth. I got to do this heroic thing and then I'll, I'll live forever. So I, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but it, it's in our DNA. It's a tale as old as time. Mm. Another thing I know that, that has really resonated with me, and, I, and you've been talking about this and posting about this recently, is, is motivation and commitment, this kind of relationship between the two of them. And I think there is this notion that you need to get really motivated and then you commit to something. But it turns out that might not actually be the way it works. It may be the other way around. Can, can you expand on that a bit? You're hitting on all of my favorite topics, so we're definitely um, kindred spirits. So yeah, you said it really well. There's there's this common prevailing wisdom that you need to feel good to get going. You need to be inspired. You need to be motivated. What it turns out is that actually it's often the reverse. Mm -hmm. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. Now, we know that this is true because we see it studied at arguably the most extreme place, which is pretty bad clinical depression. Yeah. And the gold standard treatment for clinical depression is something called behavioral activation. And what behavioral activation says is you can have a brain that is telling you that life is meaningless. You can have a body that is saying, I don't have any energy to get out of bed. I'm just going to sit here all day, all week. And if you can learn to take those feelings along for the ride and just force yourself to do something, that can get people on the path to healing. Now, is it a godsend? Is it fake it till you make it? Absolutely not. It's a really effective tool in the toolkit. And part of what makes depression so insidious is the depressive mind says, no, there's nothing possible about getting going. You just can't do it. But once you start to put things in action, that's when the thoughts and feelings start to change. Now, what doesn't work is trying to just change how you feel or will yourself to think different thoughts. And if we know that that's true in clinical depression, well, then of course it's true when we're just having a rough day or we're just feeling kind of flat. Um, but again, it's this, it's, it's very kind of counter to this notion that you've got to be really inspired and here's all these ways to hack your motivation and to feel great. When in fact, I think a, a part of being a mature adult is not feeling great, showing up and, and doing the thing that you wanted to do anyways. And then sure enough, you tend to feel better after. Um, an example from my own life is I, I tend to be pretty extroverted. I thrive off of community and, um, I used to do all of my strength training in a gym and I used to do all of my writing in a coffee shop. And for a long time, COVID kiboshed both of those things. And I'll tell you what, during the two year period that, you know, based on my family's risk tolerance, we were pretty shut down. I probably felt like working out and or writing, I don't know, maybe 25 times out of 700 days. Mm -hmm. But I wrote a book and a half and I made enormous gains in my physical practice. Why? Because I was able to follow this principle that said, hey, you don't have to feel like doing this. Just get started. Just give yourself a chance. You can always stop. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's powerful. And I mean, there's a lot of ways that, that this can be you know, applied. Like, don't, you don't have to be in marathon shape to then sign up for a marathon. Sign up for the marathon and you'll get into good shape you know, or, or anything, or an Iron Man, or, or a book. I mean, but there's something to me that's wonderful about the human spirit, which is once you commit to something, I think you fall into this really interesting place of then wanting to problem solve to figure out how you're going to make it happen. And I, I've seen this a lot in my work as a therapist, just getting people out the door saying, hey, this week, uh, just one time this week, we're going to take a walk around the block and just how powerful that can be. So I think, I, I think these are all great examples. And I am amazed at how we seem to have the equation backwards all the time. Yeah, and, and something that I talk about often with coaching clients is, um, and this I think happens as we age, but just this feeling that, hey, I used to snap out of bed, just like ready to seize the day. Mm. And now it's harder to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And people want to problematize that. And my initial reaction is like, so what? <laughs> you know, it's harder to get out of bed. All right, we'll still get out of bed and get going. How do you feel at the end of the day? Oh, I feel great. Mm. And I get it. Like, it stinks to have to work a little bit extra hard to get started. But I think that the opposite, which is saying, oh, no, something must be wrong with me because I don't feel like supercharged up is is perhaps more harmful. Now, of course, 
this doesn't mean that like, you know, if you're tired because you only slept four hours, that's a healthy way. I'm saying all other things being held equal and reasonable. And if you're just joining us, my guest this hour is Brad Stolberg, executive coach, writer, and author of The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes, your soul. So how do you feel about some of these ideas that we're talking about? Like, for example, consistency is more important than intensity, or that mood follows action. Do they resonate with you? If so, please share your experiences on our Facebook group. You can find the link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. This is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Brad Stahlberg, executive coach, writer, and author, talk about motivation, peak performance, and sustained excellence. But sometimes something very serious can get in the way of all of that, our mental health, which I care a lot about on this program. In just a moment, Stahlberg opens up about his personal struggle with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and excessive anxiety. We talk honestly about what it means to have intrusive thoughts, which can be really taboo and unsettling. So I want to give our listeners an important warning right now. The following conversation is not suitable for children, and some listeners may find the discussion disturbing. If that includes you, now is a good time for you to end our show or switch to another program. As a therapist and as part of our ongoing discussions into mental health, I feel that it's important to hear Brad's experiences as he describes them and in his own words. This is how we move past stigma and encourage more open conversation about mental disorders, even if it's an uncomfortable conversation. In discussing intrusive thoughts, we talk briefly about self-harm, suicidality, and pedophilia, and how, in fact, a vast majority of people have intrusive thoughts. Let's get back to our conversation. I'm really glad you brought up the, the, the example of clinical depression. And this is, I mean, this is a topic that I know we both care a lot about, which is mental health. And we talk about it a lot on the program. And, and I want to talk about just some personal things that you've written about. Um, for example, you talked about later in life recently, out of nowhere, perhaps, or, or maybe from somewhere, but experiencing an OCD diagnosis, um, experiencing extreme anxiety. I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about that journey for you. Yeah, so um, let's see, almost six years ago now, uh, definitely felt like out of nowhere. I had no history of mental health diagnosis. Um, I started to get really panicked about my health. Hmm. And I started to think that something was wrong with me. And I had this lingering sense of dread. Um, and I developed an obsession of, well, what does my heart feel like when it's beating or what's my respiration like and, and so on and so forth. And then I would do all of this checking to try to reassure myself that I was going to be okay. And those intrusive thoughts spread from concerns about my health to concerns about my sanity, um, concerns that I was going to harm myself, concerns that I was going to harm someone else. And I thought I was utterly broken. Um, I'm very fortunate that my partner, Caitlin, is um, loving and warm and, 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 and understands that mental health is a real thing. And I'm very fortunate that I had that education to know that, hey, like my brain is broken, but man, was I on the edge. Mm. Um, so I pretty quickly identified because it did come out of nowhere within like a week. I'm like, all right, like my brain is broken. I need help. Yeah. And um I got in to see a psychiatrist because things got really bad. I started having um, many thoughts about self-harm. Yeah. And um, they said, you're not depressed. You're not suicidal. You just have really bad OCD. And I always thought that OCD was about being super organized or you know hand-washing, which it can be. But OCD at its core is about having an intrusive thought or feeling or urge that you don't want to have and then doing everything you can to try to make it go away, but it just comes back stronger. Mm. And, um, man, that was like the biggest sigh of relief in my life. Cause I thought I was going down this path, which, you know, which the end might've been like the end of me. And then to just hear, oh, you have OCD. Um, 
in many ways, that one line was liberating. And then, of course, you know, part of the OCD mind is being like, well, what if the psychiatrist is wrong? Uh-huh. What if I don't actually have OCD? And then it was, you know, eight to 12 months of intensive therapy and medication before I, I, I got to the other side. I mean, as someone personally who has, you know, suffered with anxiety disorders and aspects of intrusive thoughts, I, I just want to say that that's an incredibly scary place to be and one that a lot of people have have suffered through quietly. And maybe you can talk a little about about the nature of intrusive thoughts, because what we know about them is they actually exist in most people and they're not acknowledged very commonly and how we, quote unquote, combat them is the wrong way. So let's explore that a little bit together. Yeah, and, and, and I want to make sure that we give this the, the time and space. So intrusive thoughts, uh, I'm just going to name a few that I had. One was that I was going to take my infant and throw him out the window. Mm-hmm. Another was that I was going to lose control of my mind and body and take a knife and stab myself with it yeah. or stab my wife with it. And those thoughts are actually thoughts, and I didn't know this at the time, I know this in hindsight, that most people have. Like, we don't control our thoughts. We have all kinds of crazy thoughts. And most people are like, oh, that's a that's a f***ed up thought, and then they get on with their day. Mm-hmm. OCD, you take that thought seriously, and you say, oh my God, what if I actually do it? Or I'm a bad person for having this thought. Or how can I protect myself to make sure that I don't actually do this thing? And then by wrestling with the thought, by trying to make it go away, you just give it more power. Yeah. So there are different therapeutic approaches to OCD. The one that I went through and that, and again, and in, in now my research, I know that it is one of the more effective is basically learning to let those thoughts be there. So not trying to make them go away, not bargaining with them, not reassuring yourself, just saying, you know, I might be pummeled by the thought 1000 times today that I'm going to stab myself. Mm-hmm. And I just need to be okay with that. Now, what makes it even harder is often those scary thoughts, they're not just neutral. They're, they're associated with feelings of 10 out of 10 anxiety or dread or despair. So you're kind of sitting in this just brutal storm of like terrible, anxious, depressive feelings and intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's what OCD is. Yeah. It's not having, you know, your red crayons and your green crayons next to each other. I'm so glad you're clearing this up because I think it's important that we use terms and diagnoses carefully because we live in a, in a world now where you say, oh, you know, Mike, you're so OCD or whatever. Or like, I don't think people really understand the, what a true diagnosis is and what this is. Just as you say, there's more emphasis on the C word, the compulsions, not the O word, which are the obsessions. And so it, it's important that I think this gets cleared up because um, this, is, this is what we're talking about. So um, I appreciate that. And again, I am so fortunate that I was able to realize that, hey, my brain is broken and I need help. And I'm so fortunate that I had access to help. And by the grace of God, I'm fortunate that the psychiatrist that I saw happened to subspecialize in OCD. Yeah. Because what often happens is people don't get a diagnosis or they're ashamed. Like if you're constantly having the thought that you're going to smother your infant, Mm -hmm. that's not something that you want to go in and discuss with your primary care doctor. So you bottle it up and you try to make it go away and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, And unfortunately, the for many people that don't get help, the end result is Mm self-harm just because living with this uncontrolled is just God awful. Um, so if there are listeners out here who are struggling with intrusive thoughts and and you think that your brain is broken, um, the good news is you might just have OCD and the bad news is it's really hard and I'm sorry that you're going through that, but like get help. I should be proof that it can get better. Right. When I, when I, before I had my diagnosis, this consumed 24 hours of my day. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jonathan, I would wake up in the middle of a night to pee and my first thought would be, am I going to stab myself? Right. Yeah. 24 hours of my day. Now, maybe I'm in an OCD spiral for 30 minutes a month. So it can get better with the right treatment. What I find really fascinating about OCD and intrusive thoughts is that those that have them, first of all, 
we know that 80 to 90 percent of people have intrusive thoughts. Probably everybody does, right? So I think the first important thing is to remove the stigma or the shame around the thought because, and I know you would say the same thing, we don't know where our thoughts come from. And the fact that a thought arrives in your mind doesn't say actually anything about you. They just come, right? And so I think, you know, the first thing we try and do, though, when we have a scary thought is we combat it kind of verbally or with what, you know, we, we try and deny it. Say, oh, no, you would never do this. That's not the case. You have a track record of being a healthy person and blah, blah, blah. But, and I want you to talk more about this. That's the last thing you should be doing because now you're entertaining the thought in and of itself and almost giving it more power. Isn't that right? That is right. Um, you should never bargain with an intrusive thought. So at a point in my therapy, I was actually instructed to just agree with them. So I'd be driving and I'd have the intrusive thought, you know, you might just swerve into oncoming traffic. And instead of being like, I would never do that, or what a terrible thought to have, or I better like not drive this car anymore and make my life smaller because I might swerve into intrusive, you know, I might swerve into traffic. I was just supposed to agree with it. My therapist literally told me when I had a thought like that to be like, yeah, like I might, but I'm going to keep driving. Mm -hmm. What makes it hard is with clinical OCD, you're also sitting in like eight to nine to 10 out of 10 anxiety because you actually like you think you're going to do it. And that's why it's also so important to get the right diagnosis. Right. Right. But yeah, man, uh, bargaining with intrusive thoughts just makes them stronger. And I think that is the example, at least that, that I've seen in the research, is the most common intrusive thought is, um, oh, I could just drive off the road yeah. because everyone drives. And apparently, like you said, 80 to 90, maybe even 95% of people have that thought. What makes OCD different is that thought gets tinged with 10 out of 10 panic mm. and you try to bargain with it and then it just feeds it. And w this is to me where we see these really interesting parallels between Western psychology and, and, and Buddhism or mindfulness practices or meditation. I mean, those that have a very... I think a, a strong practice and are taught to be meditators are you are in a place of observance, but not attaching to. So it's a noticing of a thought, but not attaching to the thought. And so, I mean, I think this is where I, things like mindfulness and meditation practices, when taken seriously, along with getting help and perhaps medication or, you know, a therapist can be really powerful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and also, I, I mean, I assume that we're, we probably grew up around the same time is, you know, just it's like undoing a lot of what we learned in the West in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Mm. I was taught, like, you should think positive. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like that works when everything's clicking, but like tell that to someone experiencing depression or, or tell that to someone that's even just having a day. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you shouldn't think positive. I was taught that like you better get your motivation up as we just discussed. Actually, like no, motivation follows action. So there's also this undoing of um, a lot of just cultural messages that were um, not communicated out of ill intent or harm, mm -hmm. but just prove out to be uh, to be incorrect. Another, you know, like 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 think positive. I think is 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 the one that really really gets me. Um, because it, it's one of those things where, like you said, I mean, there, any neuroscientist will tell you thoughts just happen. Right. Another example of this are those that maybe grew up in really religious environments or, uh, you know, in which you have to disclose thoughts and give a judgment to them, a sinful thought, a bad thought. When the reality is, just as you said, and it's just important to reiterate this, we don't know where they come from. The idea that a thought arises doesn't mean that you are that. And I think it's so important because that also goes against a lot of early psychology, you know, Freudian slips or what happens in the unconscious is might actually be real or, you know, desires that we've been smothering. But that actually may not be true. There is a big mystery around where thoughts come from, and I think it's okay to not label them. So I, I, I just wanted to put that out there, too. That was another really important part of my recovery in, in my journey was, you know, coming, coming is a very introspective person. I'm like, well, what do these thoughts mean? And, yeah. you know, what does it have to do with my childhood? And shouldn't we explore and try to find meaning here? And my therapist was just like, no, like these thoughts are meaningless. They're just thoughts. Yeah. And like ultimate wisdom is learning to accept that. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I think that there's nuance here because Obviously, reflection in learning from past experiences is really important. I think the ultimate question to ask, is this serving me or is it not? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is it's not, then to be okay with saying, you know what? 
like this spade of thoughts I'm having, this might just be random. It might just be bad weather. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to feed it. I'm not, I'm just going to let it go. What's been working well for you now in terms of, you know, understanding this diagnosis, keeping it in check? Um, are, are there changes? Do you, are you exercising more, sleeping more, um, other environmental changes that have been helpful for you? No, I think it's really just learning these skills from, from therapy. Because, mm. I, again, I came at this with um, somewhat limited knowledge of, um, of what OCD is. I'd say very limited knowledge. And I think that for me, it's really been learning the tools and then having a therapist that at the time I felt like I was trusting with my life. Mm. Um, mm. Some of the exposure therapies we did where you kind of expose yourself to your intrusive thoughts, I thought that it was going to be the end of me, but I really trusted this therapist and I didn't want to keep living such a narrow life, which, which is what OC does, OCD does, excuse me, it makes your life smaller. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I, you know, to be honest, I haven't made radical changes. That's why this was so striking. I was in a, a happy relationship. I was exercising a lot. Um, my first book had just been named a bestseller, like by all intents and purposes, I was doing great. I wasn't using illicit substances. And then just like, you know, a, a, a tornado just came across my life. Um, and, 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 and sometimes that can just happen. And, and I also had to accept that. And then um, it was really getting help with a good therapist and, and learning some of these skills and just learning not to take thoughts and feelings so seriously. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you sharing the story. And, you know, I, we started this conversation talking a lot about peak performance. So we, we've now moved into mental health and OCD. And I, but I wonder if, if there's kind of threads that connect these or ways that they, they come together. Or do you find them to kind of be two very different parts of your life? Oh, no, I think they definitely come together. Um, so when I, when I was kind of on the other side, or at least starting to, to get out of the woods of OCD, um, someone who'd followed my initial work was um, a, a really prominent, well-known psychiatrist. He had co-authored um, the, the DSM-4 or the DSM-5. I'm not sure which volume, but one of the more recent you know, Bibles of psychiatry. And yeah. I know that he had read my prior books, and I reached out to him. And I just said, like, it's it's going to be really hard for me to own my identity as this expert on excellence, given what I've gone through and what I'm still going through. And he just said that a huge part of peak performance is playing through the pain. Hmm. Um, and that obviously really resonated with me because I'm retelling that story here. And, and I think that's true. And I think if anything, what it's done is it's just given me so much more compassion for other people that are struggling and helped me to understand that, you know, excellence isn't about, I said it's about feeling good and doing good, and that's true, but, you know, when you zoom out over the course of a lifetime, there are going to be periods where you're not feeling good and you're not doing good, and that's okay, too. Sometimes I love the image that, that you know, we see in mythology or in, in certain stories, that of a, the wounded healer, you know, the person that, that is able to heal because they are wounded themselves and can recognize the wound. And I, th I find myself in a trap, you know, as a, as a licensed therapist and somebody that gets to speak to people like you that I should have it figured out, but I still, I still struggle with mental health. I still struggle with a lot of big things. And I think just owning that is, is an okay place to be. I think it's the most human place to be. You know, the word compassion, um, co is with and passion is the root for suffer. So it's to suffer with. And I think that that if there's any value to going into these dark woods, it is that we become more compassionate. And um, it's that compassion in those shared experiences that connect us. It's why me and you can have this rich conversation, which I would argue does give life meaning. Mm -hmm. um, now, is that to say that, oh, it's, it's great that, you know, I had OCD and it sounds like you had some really bad anxiety? Mm -hmm. Of course not. I'd much rather us not have had this, but no one gets through life unscathed. Um, and if we can get to the other side of these things, I do believe that there's a lot of, um, a lot of added texture that comes from them. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I, I, I'm so happy that we were able to talk about intrusive thoughts today, because as I said, I think it's, it's even a part of psychology that's not discussed enough. We we're not familiar of what it is. And so again, I, I think the importance of telling these stories publicly to me is really powerful. And, 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 I, and I'm not surprised because mm -hmm. the, the intrusive thoughts tend to latch on to the most taboo things. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're being bombarded, um, a very common uh, OCD theme, I'm so fortunate that I didn't have this, is um, like pedophilia. Yeah. You know, who's going to go tell their doctor about that? But it happens to be, I think, the, the most recent article I saw is it's like the third most common intrusive thought. So given what we know about OCD diagnosis, that means there's at least, I don't know, 400,000 people out there having that thought right now. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it, it can really feel like you're broken. Um, so I think the more that we give this some space to breathe, the more that people can get help. What's ahead for you now? I mean, you've you've been writing a lot about peak performance. Um, you've taken on these serious subjects of OCD. But when you look ahead, at, you know, what motivates you now? Or what are the big questions you feel that you're investing yourself in right now? Well, I want to be a good parent to my two kids. I think that's really important to me, especially as they, they start to get older. Um, just the, the, the role of a parent is forever evolving, but as they become their own little people and develop their own personalities, that's, that's really important to me on the home front. Um, in terms of the ideas that I want to wrestle with, um, I've been working on a big project around change hmm. and um, reframing change and thinking about change not as an event that happens, but as being synonymous with life. Um, the, the, the number one teaching of all the perennial wisdom traditions is impermanence, which is just a fancy way for saying things always change. Yeah. And the number one rule of physics is entropy, which is that things are always changing and moving towards chaos. And I find it really interesting that we think about change again, as these one-off events that happen and that shapes our entire reaction and response to it. And um, I'm really interested in what it would be like to reconceptualize change as, as just life. And I think anybody that lives long enough knows that that is such a fundamental part of who we are. And I think just thinking about your story, I have a feeling you didn't expect to one day wake up and have an OCD diagnosis, but here we are now. I mean, that and a child and a life that continues to go, it's, it's all part of our story, isn't it? It is. And, and you're getting right to the heart of my next book, which is how do we also think about having a sense of self and a strong, solid identity when everything is always changing, including us? Mm. So how do we hold these two competing ideas at the same time? Um, and, and that's the big question that I, I'm wrestling with in my next project. Well, I've been speaking with Brad Stolberg, coach, writer, author of Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and most recently, The Practice of Groundedness. Um, Brad, I really just appreciate your ideas, your vulnerability, and uh, just spending time with us on KCRW. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we could go on forever. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody, and we hope you found this discussion with Brad Stolberg as important as we did. If you or anyone you know struggles with suicidality, the National Suicide Hotline is 988. And if this show brought up any questions of OCD in your own life, please reach out to a therapist or psychiatrist for help. As always, we'd love to get your thoughts on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.